Hello, you're listening to Renaissance Man, a podcast featuring my father, Philip Brunel, as he talks about the world of music. Okay, so I got the phone calls done. I'll be back here tomorrow to finish, and here I am, and here you are. Yeah, where have you been in the world? What's going on with you? I should bring my date book in here so I can know. Well, the big thing I've been working on now, of course, is um, the big ethnic music festival that I have to plan in China. Maybe I hadn't told you about that. No, (laughs) do tell. Ethnic music, China, who's, what's happening? Well, there's going to be a big, the people in Kairi in China, which is like way uh, west of Beijing, Mm -hmm. um, they want to have a a first ever big ethnic music festival. Mm -hmm. And so there's two unique groups that live in that part of China, Mm -hmm. the Dong people and the Miao people, Mm -hmm. and they're very unique sounding and everything, and they want to have this festival, and so we need to, we, IFCM, needs to to work on making this happen. So, Philip, will you do it? Right. Well, Uh, when I think of, you know, labels like First Ever, and I think of ethnic, I think of you. Yeah, well... well, it's not like the first time you've ever done a first ever no. or the first time you've ever done something ethnic. This would be, however, the first time I've organized from a long ways away yeah. a festival in a place I've never been to. I've been to China, but right. I've never been to Kylie. I said, so when do you, when is this? They said, August. And I said, which year? This year, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then our topic of improvisation <laughs> today is spot on. <laughs> but but I don't think we're going to talk about improvisation through the lens of improvising an ethnic music, first ever mu- ethnic music festival, thousands of miles hence. Right. Yeah. Well, what they wanted me to help with is to bring other groups that uh, might be ethnic groups yeah. and... I, you, just bring, you could bring people from Minnesota. They would be... They would. Right. So I said, fine. I would help make that. So I have found a wonderful group of 12 singers from the northern part of Sweden, mm-hmm. up in the Barents area. And mm-hmm. so, and they do a kind of music called Sami. Mm-hmm. And uh, the soloist, who I couldn't get a hold of for the longest time, uh, was because she was out branding reindeer. Oh, well, you know. (laughs) So I finally got that together. And then I have the woman. Hold on. How how often when you're trying to book a singer is is the problem that, I'm sorry, I was out branding reindeer? It doesn't happen as often as you might think, no. (laughs) And then I have a woman to lecture about the the pygmy people in Gabon, Mm -hmm. and so she, I got her, I have a group of singers from Mexico, uh, Mm -hmm. and then I have a bluegrass group from southern USA, Mm -hmm. I have a women's trio from Hungary Mm -hmm. doing the ethnic music of Hungary, a a woman soloist who is doing the music of uh, the mountainous part of Eastern Europe, and she knows all of that. Anyone from Africa? Uh, Just the woman from Gabon. Mm, Right. No, no, that's not true. And then I have a group from Morocco, Mm. and they are doing music of Morocco and the Arabic. So this is a guy and five instrumentalists with him. So you've you've found all these people and then gotten them somehow arranged to get to Western China well, that's what we're in the middle of working for on. For a first ever ethnic right. music. And wow. then they said, and now the opening ceremony mm. that you plan. Right. And I said, well, 
what do you want? And they said, what the, the to open and it to yeah. be a ceremony. I said, well, the Dong people, they said, will come and the Miao people, they will come on stage. So I said, okay, how many of them will that be? They said, oh, about 2,000 of each. I, of course. And <laughs> right. I, I said, oh, good. And then your, your people yeah. will then kind of be a bridge that will it, come walking so in. Wait, so there's a stage that will hold 4,000 people. Well, I said, how many are in the audience? Well, we don't know yet. 30, 40,000? <laughs> wow. I said, of course. Yeah, right. Well, well, I mean, hey. Not that you, you've been there. You've done that. I know. They said then also, now don't forget, right. <laughs> as if I knew. They said, you know, the Chinese choirs that will come and sing. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, how many of those? Oh, maybe 50. And I said... <laughs> Okay. You know, when China does something, they do it big. <laughs> it's big. So anyway, I'm still working trying to get all the pieces together. That's exciting. You, know, we need to send a uh, uh, a videographer to just capture all of this because yeah. I think it's it's fascinating, right? To think, you know, we think we put on, you know, there's Coachella and other big concerts here in the states, and those are pop concerts, but you're talking about. Not necessary. You're talking about fairly obscure music for which there's going to be forty thousand people listening mm -hmm. to almost five thousand people performing in a part of the world that none of us really know. That's fascinating. And then they, at the meeting, they said, "Now, after this festival is done, uh, these people then go with us to the next festival in Inner Mongolia." And I said, I cannot do that. I'm already booked. Right. But, but yeah, but they, they will all come. I said, well, I have to write to all these people and say, are you available to go to Inner Mongolia? Yeah. And some the, some can, and the lady doing the reindeer cannot. Yeah. Well, so, there's a lot of branding to be done with those reindeer. So there you are. That's wow. Kind of one of the you, things. Your life reminds me of that book um, about the World's Fair in Chicago, The Devil in the White City. Yeah. You know, and, sure. and, and Burnham and his, the architect and his friends trying to put on the World's Fair. You, it seems like you put on a World's Fair on, uh, on an almost weekly basis. Well, we'll see. We try. We, I mean, yeah. you know, this was one of those, we need to have this done, and Philip, would you make it happen? Of course, before yeah. that, I've got the Barcelona. World Choral Symposium in three weeks. So yeah. that's well, of course, that's coming up. You wouldn't have it any other way. I wouldn't. And next Saturday will be interesting because Vocal Essence has been asked if I would. I mean, Vocal Essence has been asked if yeah. I would bring a, a group of singers to do patriotic music mm. for a big gathering of four thousand motorcyclists who are all veterans. And I said, those people love patriotic music. They do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not kidding. No, and so we'll see what this. It's out at, on some airfield. So I said, okay, we'll do it. So, if you can find, in your vast library of novelty music, any kind of pep songs or hymns that come out of, so remember Harley Davidson, you know, Milwaukee, yep. Wisconsin probably about 100 years old or more as a brand, mm -hmm. I'm thinking that they probably had a corporate hymn or a corporate pep song hmm. from the 20s or 30s, somewhere that, you know, in that, in that era when corporations funded their own live, their own orchestras. And I mean, yep. you know, I remember Ma, Ma Bell, my, my grandfather, Art, your father-in-law, sang in the bell tones which was funded by the telephone company. Exactly. In addition to two 60-voice choirs, two, and two orchestras. Right. When are corporations going to start funding their own employee choirs and orchestras again? I don't know. It's starting to come back a little bit, but they need to do it more. It's such a great way of bringing and bonding people together mm -hmm. so that they're not just isolated but they're yeah. really doing something because singing is of course the best way of bringing you together because you can bring a whole group no one has to buy an instrument they right. already own the instrument right. and they can come together and do it
Okie dokie. Um, so we had discussed improvisation a little bit in episode one uh, when we were talking about your, your music education. And then again, we talked about it a bit on those two episodes dedicated to opera. Um, but it felt like the subject of improvisation needed its own sequence of episodes. So we're going we're gonna to produce three episodes on improvisation. Um, this is the first one. And then I want to do another one at the piano, which we're going to videotape. And a third one at the organ. And, and those other two may be a bit more technical in nature because you can demonstrate and we can see what, what you're talking about. Um, but today I thought, let's kind of set the, set the stage, kind of talk about a little bit about history, a little bit about philosophy, and, and maybe a little bit about methodology uh, with regards to improvisation. Does that sound like uh, something you're up for? Of course. <laughs> and we should remind people, it's like you emailed me at about 11 o'clock this morning and said, I know we're talking uh, today, but what are we talking about? And I said, the perfect topic, improvisation. And you said, okay, so here we are. That's right. Um, so when you, I'm thinking about the very first episode, you had briefly mentioned improvisation. Um, and I'm guessing presumably at the piano, but maybe it was singing. Do you remember the very first occasion when you impro improvised and kind of the impetus to dive in? I'm thinking on stage or in front of an audience. I would suspect it was at the organ because, you know, I started playing the organ at, what, age 14. And so often in um, times at the organ, let's, you know, in those early days, I did a lot of um, uh, improving, or, or I mean, I did a lot of playing for weddings and things like that. And in those days, uh, you know, you might be playing a piece and then you had to find a way to uh, do a modulation from one piece to another and not just play one chord, but actually play you know, some kind of little theme, kind of move it there. So these kind of things happen, and that would be kind of the nature of how I think I probably first did improvisation, or it would be like if a soloist was singing a couple of songs and they, uh, they wanted to make, uh, a, they finished singing one song, and, but you can't just stop dead. And it was like, while they're getting their music ready, how are you going to fill in those 30 seconds? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I guess I'm going to do something here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to improvise something. Okay. So that's probably the way it started. So age 14, 15, yeah. somewhere in there. Sure. Okay. Um, so, but how did you get there? Um, because, because I started to have, I knew a lot of repertoire. I mean, you have to start with, having a musical background that you mm -hmm. kind of know what it is. And you also, it, when it comes to like knowing a series of chords, you kind of knew what chord could lead to another chord. Mm, that's and, theory, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But did, did you have, when you think about any of your piano teachers or your organ teachers, was the subject of, hey, let's practice these chord progressions or these changes um, so that you kind of could start to like leave the nest so to speak and and improvise never really uh -uh. so n none of your piano teachers none of your organ teachers no. they were not improvisers okay so right. none of them ever ever said let's work on that right did you ever have a teacher who was an improviser no so, so who modeled it for you? Did you see other players out there that were in, in, in bands or, I mean, you must've gone to like, I'm thinking other church organists or mm -hmm. other people in high school or whatever that you saw, oh, hey, that person is, oh, they're, they're making that up. Oh, that's improvising. Exactly. I mean, so I can remember pianists and organists that I heard that gave me ideas, mm -hmm. but I was never a part of my formal training. Hmm. All right. Well, it's 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 interesting. Like it's it's similar to jazz music in the sense that, in order, part of learning to improvise 
is to kind of go out and observe others improvising. You know, you have to see the behavior modeled mm-hmm. um, to know that it exists and that there are different approaches to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you didn't go to the, you weren't hanging out in the nightclubs. Uh, no, no, that would be true. <laughs> you were hanging out in the church basements mm-hmm. and, and, and the rehearsal halls kind of picking up on, oh, hey, wait, he's not doing something that, or she's not doing something that's written down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could do that. All right. Um, interesting. So, at, per usual, I, I solicited questions from, well, he, that's how you have to do this. You have to, so I was talking with Dave Hagedorn, okay. uh, the, the, the vibes player, um, the great vibes player. So, Here's a question, and it gets kind of to the education piece, and and maybe to kind of the the history of improvisation that you might have seen with you know back in the classical period. Did you study any treatises and ornamentations, you know, by people like Quantz or Couperin, uh, or or do recordings give you enough kind of authentic information, or you know, do the few written out versions by various composers give you enough to go on? Like, did you? S- because there, there is kind of a tradition of kind of explaining the logic of improvisation. Oh, I read those books, the ones of Quantz and Couperin. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. Okay. I've read that stuff. And that kind of, okay, that kind of gives you a, a kind of a, um, a guide, mm-hmm. a guidepost. Think about moving this way. Right. But then you just kind of, I'm, so you kind of put that information in your brain mm-hmm. and you just kind of keep it there. Mm-hmm. And, but then with it, you know, you just, you, you play a lot of music and then as you begin to do your own styles mm-hmm. a lot of it becomes based on what you remember playing and just the kinds of mm-hmm. chords i mean i'm not a jazz guy so that kind of improv i never did nor would i be comfortable doing it because i didn't you know right. i didn't grow up with that yeah. so you, my, you don't have that muscle memory i don't so my improvisation skills are really classical mm-hmm. do you do you practice do you prepare um today like in in this 2017 you know you're going to be 71 on saturday happy birthday um i'm not going to be 71 what did i get my math wrong yeah you did i will be 74 oh excellent great well there you go um so at age 74 do you still practice for improvisation and prepare for that? Well, I practice certainly for every Sunday that yeah. I'm I, that I'm playing. I practice if I'm having to play piano to accompany someone, mm-hmm. etc. As far as improvisation, my improvising now is primarily on Sunday mornings, and uh, I would say it is mostly if I want to do an introduction to a hymn. Um, and I want to give it uh, a special kind of meaning that fits the service, that fits the moment in the service, not just the service. Because you could say, oh, I've got this really terrific idea to improvise on the melody, and then you get to that moment in the service, and let's just say, I'm making this up, but it would be like they just announced the death of someone Mm -hmm. that's dear and I was all ready to do this peppy yeah. improv, and it's like, I think that will go away. Right. And then you will just have to, on the spot, think of a new way mm-hmm. to make that happen. But I do think through in my head. I don't sit and practice it mm-hmm. I, once in a while, but mostly yeah. it's just I'm thinking it through in my head, so I've got a plan yeah. in my brain right. before I start playing. Okay. Um, I was chatting with... Chris Farrell from Minnesota Public Radio, and um, he says the popular image of creativity and inspiration with music is the lone creator, right? Maybe with the exception of, say, like jazz groups. So how do you see the role of collaboration plays or doesn't play in the creative process? And has the role of collaboration changed over the years in terms of the way that you think about improvisation? Well, collaboration would be only in the sense of listening to others and getting ideas that somebody, somebody has given you, you've heard them improvise, and you go, ooh, that's kind of a really fascinating way. And I love, you know, when there have been organ recitals that I have invited guest organists who are 
wonderful improvisers. I've usually asked them at the end of the program, let me give you some themes. And I'm fascinated to give somebody a, you know, a theme that they don't know mm -hmm. and say, um, go for it and see what they do with that theme. And mm. I mean, it's I love that because I learned from that kind of thing. Right, I remember when you were having the, the organ series here, and I can't remember who the performer was, but you know, you kind of called out to the audience, and, and so the melodies that were proposed were Take Me Out to the Ball Game, you know, like Happy Birthday, and, and I think it might have been like the Minnesota Rouser or something mm -hmm. like that. And I, whoever it was said, oh, I will do a fugue. Mm -hmm. And then spun out a 12-minute completely improvised fugue that included those three melodies and did, uh, you know, articulations and right. and modulations and, and, and adjustments on those three themes. And, and we all just kind of sat there like, how are you doing that, you know? Well, now, now we'll, that we'll, was a French organist, and as we'll, a matter of and, fact. And we'll get to that when we get to ep the, next ep the third episode on improvisation, and, and we'll have you do that at the organ. I won't do a 12-minute one because... <laughs> What the other thing is that French organ teaching, as opposed to say American method, mm -hmm. and or certainly at least the way I was trained, their method involves a great deal of improvisation. That is part of every weekly lesson. So, mm -hmm. the, so they are there. It's a much more strict kind of learn the rules, and then if you know all the rules, you can play a twelve-minute thing that's so highly complex. And you go, okay. I mean, they have been schooled to do that, which we in this country, except in a few places, haven't. All right, let's 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 compare and contrast. What does improvising music feel like compared to playing composed music? Oof. Well, um, you know that you're going to be surprised when you improvise, because you don't know what's going to come out of it and where it's going to go. Sometimes you would be sort of like driving in a part of um, the country that you've never been, and you go down a road and say, you know, there's a dead end here. I have to turn around and find another way out of this. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in improvising, you start down a path and go, uh-uh, this isn't going to work. And then you have to kind of just find a way to be able to leap over to another uh, part of the road of mm -hmm. music mm -hmm. and move on from yeah. there. And mm -hmm. let's face it, some improvisations are wonderful and some are just not inspired and they're just, you know, you kind of like, oh, I could have done that better if, mm -hmm. I'd, if I'd maybe gone down this path with mm -hmm. it rather than that. But, but And yet, you know, Thinking of my own improvisation, there have been moments where I felt like, oh, that was, you know, I, my, my improvising as a drummer, which is pretty much every drum part is totally improvised all the time, that you think, oh, that was terrible. And then the audience is like, oh, we loved that. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think in part because as, as the improviser, you are both creating and observing kind of critically, mm -hmm. you know, to know that, oh, that's a dead end. I, I can see far enough ahead that this path I'm on isn't going to end well, so I got to change. So you you have this dual role as an improviser to to create, to to almost you are conscious and subconscious at the same time, mm -hmm. and, and um, so you may have it's like you've got inside info, inside info on the improvisation that the audience doesn't have. Well, the audience, ninety nine percent and more have no idea how a person can improvise. This is just, right. this is such a foreign territory for them. So they're just amazed at any kind of improvisation you can do. I remember the first time I brought Dave Brubeck to do uh, a piece that he had written uh, for chorus and jazz ensemble and orchestra called The Light in the Wilderness. But I also realized that there would be improvisations happening during the piece, but that I suspected that the audience is going to say, well, yeah, Dave is doing this piece, but he's, he's, re, he's rehearsed those improvs before. Right. So this is, this is not going to be He's whatever. memorized it. Yeah, he's yeah. memorized it. So at the concert, we began, and I 
asked Dave, I gave him a hymn that I knew everybody in the audience would know mm -hmm. and he wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. And so we sang a verse of the hymn mm -hmm. and he heard it. And then I said, improvise on it. And people afterwards said, we knew he was improvising. We knew he had never heard it before and we have no clue how he could have done that. But at least it gave people the idea that it was truly extemporaneous. Yeah. I so I love going to you know it, it's like here in Minneapolis where we have you know Dudley Riggs and we have the Brave New Workshop and we have huge and, and there's a strong community of improvising actors. Yep. And you go and the audience provides a few cues or clues and the actors in you know 15 minutes make up a scene. You have no idea where it's going to go. You find yourself laughing, and, and, and in part because human beings are making connections and creating contexts, and, and you're thinking, A, I'm enjoying it just for the theater of it, but I'm also realizing that this is happening for the first and only time, mm -hmm. and I'm just marveling at the inventiveness of it. So one Sunday morning, Brubeck was at Plymouth Church, and for the final hymn, who knows what I did but I did an improv to set up the hymn. Mm -hmm. and, and after the service, Dave came up and said, hey, that improv you did. Now, that chord sequence, what was that? And I said, Dave, I don't remember. And he yeah. said, that's always the problem with me too. You've done it, <laughs> right. it's gone, right. and you can't recall it. Yeah. You know? that's, that, that's sort of the downside of improvising, unless it's been recorded. Unless you, it's been recorded, then you go, oh, okay, I see what I've done. Yeah, I could do that again. Mm -hmm. So when you think about like composed music, obviously a composer improvises to some degree initially in order to hypothesize and synthesize what ends up as written music, right? They have to kind of like play around with it yep. to write it down. Is that a different sort of improvising in your mind than say what you do on a Sunday morning with a hymn? In other words, are there different kinds of, is there improvising for the purposes of getting something composed versus, oh, I just need to, I need to cover the 30 seconds between these two pieces of music? Well, think back to the Baroque and say Handel. Mm -hmm. So Handel wrote all of these operas and these oratorios, and it was expected in his day, they didn't call it improvising, mm -hmm. they called it ornamenting. Mm -hmm. And what they expected was that there would be a, a, a melody, and <clears throat> when the melody got repeated, it was expected uh, that the singer uh, or the instrumentalist would do something to enhance the melody second time around. Hmm. And great ornamentalists uh, were a, 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 just a, a group of people that were idolized by hmm. the world. And there's a very famous um, song that Handel wrote in one of his operas, mm -hmm. uh, it was in Italian, Ombra Mai Fu. It's a very simple melody. And when you th hear it and people go, well, what, what's so great about that? What was great about it was that the people who were great at singing it were who knew how to do ornaments on it mm. on the second time around. People were like, wow, I yeah. know this simple melody, and now look what they're doing. So that really was a form of improvisation mm -hmm. that went on, mm -hmm. and, uh, and that went all through. And p I'm sure part of what I understand about doing improvisation comes because I adored, and still adore, all of those Handel oratorios and operas, and I listened to them all, and I played them all, and I remember just experimenting myself with okay I'm gonna take that melody and now let me see what kind of what kind of ornamentation I can do to mm -hmm. give that and I've often had many singers who come to me and said uh, could you uh, help me ornament mm -hmm. uh, this I don't know how to ornament mm -hmm. and I say sure uh, but I have to know your voice because again it's like a technique right. if you know if I were to write out some ornamentation they say I don't I don't have those notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so you have to. You have to, right. ornamentation has to be personal to the person. Well, it's like 
you know, Duke Ellington talks about writing music for very specific players. He right. knew his second <clears throat> second tenor. He knew his first trombone, and he knew what they were capable of as right. players. And so he would write structures and parts that made all of them sound great together, but sections and, and, and sort of, he would write sections where he knew, I want the second trombone to take a four bar solo in this, in this particular instance, because I know it's, it's right in his range, it's his kind of melody, you know, and it's the, the right length for him to really shine for that brief period of time, then we'll go on to the next thing. You know? Right. Well, what you have to understand too that happened with the Baroque, when that led then in the, in the 1800s into the bel canto, then it's, it was like, well, if I can do a little bit of ornamenting, yeah. let's do a lot of ornamenting. In fact, let's just forget what the composer ever had in mind, and let's just do our own thing, which is what they did. Consequently, when you got after, say, about 1850 and mm -hmm. on, then the composer started to rebel and say, wait a minute, that's, they're not even close to what I wrote, and I want it. So from now on, no ornamenting. We're going to make it just, I'll write the notes, you sing them, don't add anything. And so that, you know, which of course became uh, what you got with, say, Wagner, mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, yeah. a very strict kind of, all the notes are there, do not add. And then, you know, when you get into the 20th century, then suddenly, hmm, I think there was again some of that kind of creeping back, which of course led to the whole jazz scene. Mm -hmm. You know, well, let's see, maybe there's a way in between all of that where yeah. we can have the melody, but we can do something with it. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of to wrap up this section here, approach it from a teaching standpoint. If you were gonna teach a class of, I don't know, you know, pianists and assume that they've got decent capability, if you're gonna teach pianists how to improvise, where do you begin? What's What's the curriculum to learn to improvise? You need to know that they had some basic theory mm -hmm. so that they knew chord progressions. Mm -hmm. They knew that where they could go. Because obviously, on one level, you need to know, if I'm starting on G major, where can I move to mm -hmm. that, I mean, that makes sense right. in terms of a piece of music. So you need a certain amount of theory. Right. Uh, and frankly, the more that you know, for instance, knowing how to write, let's say, an invention, or then how to write a fugue, or then saying, okay, I know what what, what is called sonata form, or a thirty-two or a sixteen-bar blues, right? right? You know, you know, I know what this is, so I know where I have to go to make sixteen measures work, or mm -hmm. thirty-two measures, right. or whatever. So, uh, you know, it's like. If I go to a party and someone says, oh, we want you to improvise on such and such a melody, and I go, okay, then I think mm -hmm. about it a little bit. Okay, I can see mm -hmm. where I can go with that. And certain melodies in, are, are easier to do than others, again, just depending on, yeah. on what the, the melody line is. I also think of it, so, you know, getting a degree in jazz uh, and, and taking classes that were called improvisation more than half of it was essentially um, pattern development and muscle memory development. Mm -hmm. and, and it reminds me, there was a quote that the saxophonist Branford Marsalis, they were at, someone was saying, you know, you're so accomplished, why do you practice four hours a day? And his, and his, his point of view was, the, the metaphor was, well, imagine you're driving, driving from your house to work and there's a bridge that goes over a river and you're at work and then the bridge washes out, how are you gonna get home? And, and he likened it to the more patterns I had stored up in my muscle memory, the more bridges, the more routes home. It's your, your story about being stuck in the, and you realize it's a dead end. The more patterns you have that you've memorized and, and are now intuitively in your muscles, the more you are capable of responding in the moment, you've got more options. He's absolutely right, That's, that is it. Um, I wanna, shift over and talk about kind of three different but related settings. Uh, Minnesota Opera, A Prairie Home Companion, and then the silent films that you accompanied at the Walker Art Center. Because I think all three of them are, are, are different ways in of thinking about improvisation. Um, so 
first, the story, I love this story, about uh, how you got into accompanying silent films. Uh, I'm thinking about the, uh, uh, um, the Abel Gantz and the Walker Art Center. Napoleon. Napoleon. Napo- the movie Napoleon, uh, directed by Abel Gantz. Uh, and, and you improvised that entire score. Tell that story. So this was the old Guthrie Theater, which was attached to the Walker Art Center. Uh, I was conducting the dress rehearsal of La Boheme, and it finished about 4 o'clock that day, and the fellow in charge of programming at the Walker was backstage and asked me, what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, actually, as a matter of fact, I'm going to come to the Walker because you're showing this film called Napoleon and a great um, film improviser at the p- keyboard. Uh, this, he was sort of like the legendary old man of this genre. Yeah. And I thought... What was his name? Uh, Arthur Klein? Was it Klein? Arthur Kleiner. Arthur Kleiner. And so... I thought, I'd love to hear what he does. And they said, well, here's the problem. Arthur has 102 temperature, and he cannot play tonight. And we thought, who could do this? Because we, we have to do it. And it, they said, Philip can do it. So <laughs> once again, they said, into the breach, dear friends. <laughs> so he, they said, so is that OK? And I said, well, because I, I didn't know the film, of course. It's 4 o'clock. And I said, could I now then just come over and see the film? Because then I, I get some idea. Yeah, yeah. And they said, oh, well, it's a five-hour film. I went, <laughs> oh, and what, oh. And what time are they going to start showing it? Seven. <laughs> you know, and I went, yeah, I guess not. And I said, okay, obviously I can't see the film. I said, can you give me just... Uh, some kind of a synopsis of the film. A running order. Just a running order. What's going on in the film? Uh, They said, yeah, we could do that, just on one page. Mm -hmm. And then I said, who wrote the music originally that is no longer existent? They said, well, Honegger. I said, okay, well, I know what Honegger's music is like, Mm -hmm. so I can do that. Okay, so I went home, changed clothes, came down there. I remember Carol and my wife said, "Uh, where are you going? And I said, well, I want to go see that Napoleon film. Oh, she said... You know, it's really long, and you'll never stay awake. I said, I promise you, I will stay awake. So <laughs> I uh, went down there, and what I wasn't aware of right at first, so I'm sitting up front, and I'm starting to play. And they took a little break for about 15 minutes in the middle. Yeah. But I'm starting, in, and like there's, there's a great big storm scene. Well, when you're doing a five-hour film, the storm is going to last a while, mm-hmm. as opposed to it being you know, a five-minute storm. Yeah. This was, you know, it's because I started building up my storm music Mm -hmm. and realizing, "Uh uh-oh, this is a long (laughs) storm. This is not a short storm. It's a a marathon. Don't don't sprint. No, this is going to be, you know, this is a 20, 25-minute storm. Mm. So back off, figure out how you're... Your Honegger storm. My Honegger storm music, et cetera. So I finished um, the thing, and except that before it started, I said, you know, I can't be here both nights because we're doing La Boheme tomorrow night. They said, no, we understand that. So we're taping you. So tomorrow night while you're conducting Boheme, we'll still be doing the second performance here of Napoleon. And um, I said, okay. So I did it. And um, so, fi- so five hours, mm-hmm. you're, you're improvising the underscore mm-hmm. to a black and white movie right. that you'd never seen. And, right. and all you do, you have a piece of paper in front of you that says gun battle or right. at the court or on train. Exactly. That's what and, it said. And, and then you're, 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 and your only other cue is Honegger. Mm-hmm. What, what for, do you remember anything from Honegger that you kind of pulled from or like oh, sure. clue? Uh, what, what, stereo, what stereotypical Honegger that you'd pull out for something like that? Certain chords that were a chordal sequence that was very much Honegger, mm-hmm. a certain style, because I knew, for instance, a couple of his oratorios, mm-hmm. one called Joan of Arc at mm-hmm. the Stake, right. and another one being King David. I'd played one of his piano pieces. I'd played several organ pieces. Mm-hmm. So I kind of knew, you know, what did that you, style. Did you pull any, like, direct quotes from that stuff? No, 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 no. No, really? No, no. I just, I just used what I knew. Yeah. And when it was done, uh, at midnight, this guy came up to me. Um, 
who a famous, it turns out, it was a famous film um, producer uh-huh. and said, how did you do that? Where'd you get the music from? And I said, um, I just made it up. I improvised. Uh, I said, why? He said, because I'm going to be doing at Radio City Music Hall a film version of the same film they were with yeah. orchestra. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, he was just interested where <laughs> I had, how I had done that. And I mean, his, his got all composed. Yeah. But, uh, uh, and then um, I went home the guy from the paper was there, and uh, he wrote a little article that appeared the next morning in the paper. So when Carolyn opened the paper, the no, the before she opened the, opened the paper, she just said to me, so um, did you see the whole film? I said, I did. And so th- <laughs> then she opened the paper, she said, very cute. Yeah. <laughs> of course you saw the whole film. You played the five hours. That's film. right. I did. Yeah. Um, so... Contrasting, you know, we, we had talked about the newest opera in the world. Yep. Uh, and the field trips to public schools back in episodes six and seven. How were those operatic experiences improvised? And did you have any kind of, and that's more collaborative, right? That's not just you at a piano, it's you and a bunch of others. Do you guys kind of talk ahead of time and kind of huddle to say, okay, here are kind of the rules we're going to kind of agree to? Like, how did you handle the newest opera? Maybe maybe set up the newest opera in the world and talk about that experience. Well, the newest opera in the world was an unusual experience with uh, with seven singers and piano, but we did it in the spring. But we spent the fall and winter uh, learning various styles of composers, um, and based on those styles. You know, and just working them through, and let's just say, take an example, mm-hmm. early music, we did Monteverdi. Okay. So we sang a lot of Monteverdi. Right. Then it's like the music is closed. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I'm going to play something that is in the Monteverdi style, mm-hmm. and you improvise something the in singers. the style. Right. Yes, in the style of Monteverdi. Of course, some people are really good at this, and some people are not very good. Mm-hmm. And then you go to another composer. Let's say you went to Handel, mm-hmm. and you did the same thing. You'd play a, a, a mix right. of Handel, and then everyone put their music away, and you improvise yeah. on the piano, right. and the singers right. the to. singers invent lyrics and melody, oh, yes, and yeah. interactions and harmony right. together. But we were spending you know, weeks mm. just learning music yeah. before we would start to do these various So you styles. built up muscle memory. We built up muscle memory, mm-hmm. and uh, so how- certain composers were more difficult to be improvised mm. than others. Like what? Mozart. Mozart is tough to mm. improvise. Mm. And why? Just something about his way of long melody lines that made it, he was more of a challenge to, um, more of a challenge to improvise in his style because what this opera was when we did it, um, the audience uh, every night, there was a big uh, rule, like, a big like wheel. That wheel spun, of fortune kind of wheel. Yeah. Right. And, and so it would spin and it would land and it'd say, okay, um, the first scene is going to be Baroque. Oh, okay. And then it would spin. The next scene is going to be Debussy, Mm. Impressionism. Okay. So that was happening. And then each of the singers was told by the, again, the wheel spinning, who's going to be the lead man, the lead woman, who's going to be the villain, Mm -hmm. who's going to, et cetera. Everybody had a role. Were you given plot points or did they? Oh, those were also spun. Yeah. You were given a certain... You, you were uh, some constraints. Oh yeah, you were given some constraints, and then I had to then play an overture uh, <laughs> in some style given. And while I'm playing the overture, they're backstage huddling because yeah. they needed like about a minute to, to say, kind of go. What am I going to do? Okay, yeah, what's I'll the start. Story? You go on, right? Yeah, you what's the story? the story? I make it up. You're the perfect guy. You know, I was thinking, could we? Maybe do an ethnic music festival in uh, Western China. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you, you seem it. perfectly suited for it. <laughs> right. Um, all right. Uh, 
so then, so let's contrast it a little bit further. Um, talk a little bit about improvising with Garrison Keeler and, and, and on a Prairie Home Companion. And it seemed like you would channel various composers at the piano while Garrison rattled off a tale about something. I'm, how did how does that work when you're improvising with a, a, a someone a like Garrison? Well, this was he he wanted to he made up a story. Well, I mean. He said it was you know it was going to be about a a church organist uh, in a town in Iowa, and who uh, had started there 150 years ago and then died and um, many years later brought her back. But in between, they had tried other people who came through town. They tried John Philip Sousa. They oh. tried Debussy. They mm. tried etc. So, but I never knew who he was going to say next. Mm. So mm. I had to be listening to what he was saying. And you're at the organ for this. No, I'm at the piano. Oh, the piano. Okay. And so I'm at the piano, and he's and telling a story. He's telling a story, and and you got to keep playing. So yeah. you're in the style of the Correct. person you're at, yeah. and then suddenly, well, they let him go, and now they brought in. Okay, let's move then. So then you move to Stravinsky yeah. and sort of played in that style. Stravinsky's now the, the local church organist in R- Iowa. Right, exactly. Yeah, and then all you, that story's going on, and, and all of a sudden... You know, all of a sudden it's Cole Porter. Yeah. Oh, okay, here we go. Now we're <laughs> going to move into that. Yeah. And, I mean, it was... it was. I love doing it. It was, it was a challenge. Do you have an agreement with him about, like, hey, like you said, I'm not a jazz guy. Like, would you say... Don't get into like pop music composers because I, I don't know what that is. No, I would He just kind of he kind of knows you. Yeah, and I could do I know I could do certain ones to do it, but the other part of that improv on the show, he, uh, for a number of years, Vern Sutton and Janice Hardy came on with me, and we had to do a Thanksgiving cantata, mm-hmm. and. As the audience came into the theater, right. they each were given a little slip of paper, and they had to write down something they were thankful for. Right. I remember this, yeah. And so, let's say there's 900 pieces of paper, mm-hmm. and the show starts, and we are sent to the basement of this theater. Yeah. Which, which at the time, leaked. Oh, it leaked, and it was cold. This is November. It was yeah. freezing and down there. <laughs> and, you know, and so... We had all these pieces of paper, so the first thing we had to do is read them all. Read them all and put them in categories, mm, you know, because yeah. people were thankful for certain foods, mm, for friendships, etc. So all yeah. this, and then and then the weird ones yeah, over yeah, there yeah. that didn't, you know, somebody like spiders. I'm yeah. thankful for, you know. <laughs> so we had to figure. Okay, we got our category. So then we'd figure out. Okay, it's going to be a cantata. Let's do it in four movements, and some things just got thrown out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then once that was done, okay, this is going to be then. Uh, what style of music do we want to do this mm. in that kind of, you know, keeps mm. it going? And Vern and Janice were the two best. I mean, they were just amazing at doing improvs. And, but it's all based that we trusted each other. That mm. we, they knew I'd go with them, and they knew that yeah. they would go with me. We would just make this work. Well, that, that goes to another aspect about improvisation with, and goes back to the opera thing, which is group improvisation is predicated upon two things in my mind. Active listening. Mm-hmm. I am always listening to what you're doing. Even if you're not saying anything, I'm watching and observing you and trust. Totally. It's absolutely true to make it work. Uh, because if you have somebody who isn't listening, uh, we had one singer, just a wonderful singer, but wacky. And it wasn't that she didn't trust. She just was kind of ditzy and so she'd just go off on her own Mm -hmm. in a way it was kind of wonderful it made the other it threw everybody off and they had to kind of rescue her and go on but at the same time it made it if you had this story i give you an example you're building up a story you've got it all coming that everybody is now they're just about to reach uh the courthouse it's been building up, building up to the courthouse, right? And and all of a sudden, she comes wandering in and says, "And now here we are at the garbage dump." And you're going, "Um, okay, we weren't actually there, but we now are." Well, you know, as the improviser would say, "Yes, yes, and and then yeah, right, you found a way." Yeah, you you to figure it out. So, kind of a last sort of second to last penultimate uh, subject is I'm thinking about Sundays at Plymouth. Um, 
And uh, I'll start with a question from one of your colleagues, Jeff Sarton. Um, he says, thinking about Sundays at Plymouth and all of the improvisation that you do during the service, do, and let's, Jeff's a minister, so he's asking this, do you express your personal beliefs and faith in improvisations, or is it simply about the music? Well, you can't divorce your your beliefs from what you're doing mm -hmm. at all. Um, my feeling is, let's just say I'm going to do an improvisation on a hymn. Mm -hmm. Well, it isn't just music. I have to think, what is the meaning of this hymn? What is this hymn expressing? Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, what what what's the thought behind it? Because I have to match that thought because my goal is that having done that improvisation and then the congregation's gonna sing, that they have somehow sensed the spirit mm -hmm. of what the hymn is trying to say and they're brought into it as they start singing. And I and I think that's there's a difference between you setting up a hymn mm -hmm. as people, oh, we were just praying and now, oh, right, we have to find the hymnal and mm -hmm. wait, where is it in the program? And so yeah. you're you're setting up versus you're, you're famous for um, doing little improvisational breaks before the last verse, yep. which is sort of in well, some you have ways... To give them a, you have to give people a chance to clear their throat. Good grief. You can't just keep singing. <laughs> people need to cough. But I often, I often find that you... From a listener perspective, you act in some way as like a, a, the coach on the sidelines or the cheerleaders. So we've sung three verses, a fourth one's coming, and you kind of almost say, all right, team, we've got one more verse to go. Let's get it in gear, and here we go. And even if it's a quiet meditative thing, you, you find a way to kind of help us get into that fourth verse with sort of renewed perspective. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I've also tried... Uh, you know, to find a way that, or for instance, if I'm playing a hymn and, uh, I, and, and they're singing, I always play reading the words that they're singing. So, when, when you're improvising. Well, well but you know, but I'm talking about now, like you're singing the first verse of a hymn. Mm -hmm. I'm playing along. In, I'm not just playing the notes of the, of the hymn. I'm looking at the words because then I know where you're going to breathe. Mm. because I have to be able to have you with me. Yeah. And that's how it encourages people. I mean, people who come to Plymouth Church as a visitor are like, wow, this, uh, this congregation sings. Well, they sing because they trust the organist is going to be with them, that he's going to breathe with them, mm -hmm. that when phrases come, mm -hmm. but at the same time, time you know, if it's a hymn, let's say a, a very majestic hymn, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to do something mm -hmm. different than I am a hymn that's extremely peaceful and mm -hmm. contemplative. Well, I've often found too that, well, first off, your your tempo is rock solid. So, you know, as a singer, as a congregational singer, um, and I like to sing a lot of my own notes, by mm -hmm. the way. Just uh, that's me out in the audience. The but I know where one is. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and oftentimes, you know, if it's a, an old standard, they're all really obvious where one is. But, you know, you were noted for picking hymns and composers where it may not necessarily be super obvious where, where the tempo is or in different sections. And yet it's, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because it's very clear as an audience member, kind of like where I need to be. Mm -hmm. um, in a particular in a particular hymn. Oh, absolutely no! I just think that, it, I mean, I want the congregation to sing with me. I want this to work. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then I have to be mm -hmm. aware of what they're doing too. Do you ever again huddle with the the clergy before a service to get a sense? Of, like, do you ever Carla or Jeff or Paula ever just like, hey? Uh, by the way, we just learned some sad news, or we've got some interesting news, or or I mean, do they do they give you? I'm assuming you see prayers, or do you know the subject matter of the sermon or the script, so that as you're walking in, because you've got little bits and pieces, little moments throughout where you can set up, mm -hmm. or or a prayer finishes, and now you've got a segue into the next thing. How does that impact your improvising? Your improvising. Well, it's true. Not every Sunday, but many times, if one of the ministers comes to me and said, "You should just know that there's going to be." this special announcement made 
Um, and it could be something very sad. It could be something very exhilarating. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, aware that there has to be maybe a little different way of doing it. Mm -hmm. I choose all the hymns, right. but I always say to the whoever is the preaching minister of the day, right. hey, look at the hymns, and uh, before the bulletin is printed, if you think that what I've chosen for some reason doesn't fit uh, your your sermon mm -hmm. so that we need to change the middle hymn or the last that's your call mm -hmm. that's fine you know that's because part of my goal is to have uh, a variety of hymns some familiar some not but also that the hymns uh, it's such that we're not just singing the same hymns every single week mm -hmm. and yep. oftentimes I remember because my father being a minister he didn't really know much about music. My mother was the musician, but he would just choose hymns that he felt fit the day. And you might have sung the same hymn three weeks in a row, Man. but he wasn't thinking that way. Right, right, right. But I am thinking that right, way. Right, right, um, So kind of kind of wrapping things up. Um, this is another Dave, Dave Hagedorn question. Um, if during a, you know, a performance, at the piano or at, at Plymouth or out anywhere, and you get inspired, do you go substantially longer with an improvisation? I mean, so as an example, um, Newport Jazz Festival, Duke Ellington, Paul Gonzalez, they did 27 choruses on Diminuendo and Blue. Do you ever feel like, I just, I, I got it, I've, I've got the notes in me, I've got something I need to say, and, and, and you go longer, or, or do you just, or can you reel it in? I reel it in. Well, you know, a morning worship service is supposed to last just so long, and it's not about Brunel doing an extended improv that we are here for that point. <laughs> so no, no, I wouldn't do that. I mean, there might be something well, outside where I'd of say, outside of Plymouth, even. Oh well, then if I'm in someone's home for a party and they ask me to do some improv, then you know time isn't the same, and mm -hmm. I could I could find ways of of making it longer if yeah. I felt inspired to do so yeah right sure yeah. yeah that but it just really depends on the occasion yeah um, so thinking about it like in, in your in your opinion who are give us some examples of who are the great improvisers you know at the piano on the organ uh, you mentioned Vernon Janice when it comes to singing and character in your mind um, <coughs> who, who are the who are the great improvisers at the piano and the organ who should we go and listen to well, at the organ, uh, certainly one of the great improvisers was Marcel Dupre, the Frenchman, uh, who was at Saint-Sulpice for many years. In our country, uh, there were several. Uh, uh, I mean, one who was amazing was this man named McNeil Robinson, uh, who died just a couple years ago. Oh, my word. I mean, amazing what he could come up with to, and he knew all, he had had French training, so he knew kind of all those styles. He could do a half hour symphony, and you go, okay, you know, and yeah. it would be fascinating. And he would find a way, because he knew those things, to tie it all together at the end, and you go, okay. He was wonderful. Uh, Daniel Rote is a wonderful improviser. Uh, and in- On the, our, on the organ. On the organ, okay. and the other one, a guy named Jerry Hancock, who was in New York uh, and for many years at St. Thomas Church on Fifth Avenue. He was great. As far as piano, um, well, of course, you see, I came more from just the people who were the classical pianists. Right. So they weren't really, uh, th there wasn't so much of that kind of improvisation, though uh, certainly somebody like Rich Dworsky, mm -hmm. who's on Prairie Home, is amazing right. at doing this. And a, another local guy who's great at it is Dan Chenard. Yeah. You know, I mean, they just have a real talent for doing that kind of thing at the piano. They're marvelous. Right. And when you think about um, singers and actors, kind of, or singers in the, in the more in the operatic sense, I guess, or the maybe the church or classical sense, any any names come to mind in terms of an ability to to improvise on the spot? Improvise on the spot. Um, 
only in the sense that if they forgot what it was supposed to be and had to come up with something, you know, um, they would. But again, most of the people I knew were trained to sing what is on the page, mm -hmm. maybe do some added ornamentation, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Um, but somebody like Bill Balcom, wonderful at improvising in more of a jazz style, mm -hmm. uh, but also classical. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's like, um, Branford's brother, Wynton Marsalis, mm -hmm. and even Branford, they, you know, they're known for their jazz, but they also play, both of them play classical music. And so I suspect that, you know, fewer classical singers and instrumentalists are trained to improvise. It's just not a, like you said, it's not a comfort zone. No, you know? but there's a woman named Jo Stafford who was very famous back in the 60s mm -hmm. and 70s. She was amazing at doing this kind of improvisation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, there are people that have from time to time come, but they're definitely the, in the minority. Hmm. We got one last question for you, and it comes from, uh, from Dessa. And she says, um, this is a good one. I'd love to, speaking of improvisation, right, which is about kind of working uh, without the safety net, and, and it's a bit of a trick question because, you know, if you make a mistake, it's only a mistake if you kind of acknowledge it versus pivot and go somewhere else. But she asks, I'd love to know about a memorable moment of failure. Improvisation is often working without a net, and I'd be interested in hearing how one, how you, Philip, reflect on a serious fail. You ever had a failure, failure moment improvising? I've had moments when I've felt I could have done that better. Mm -hmm. I could have gone in a different direction than I did, and I could have made more of what I did mm -hmm. than, than what had happened. Uh, I've never collapsed, mm -hmm. you know, and stop, you know, right. this, this did not work. Let's wipe that off. I'm starting all over again. Right. No, because you're always having to be on. Right. You know, um, so I think sometimes you're, you may feel, I would say more, I've never had that, but I've had times when I felt that what I did was really kind of dry, mm -hmm. kind of arid. It wasn't as, it wasn't as spontaneous yeah. and, and really, really gripping as it could have been because maybe at that moment my mind was a blank and I really was on automatic pilot. Right. Yeah, you weren't, maybe you weren't listening. Yeah. Right? I, I, I find, I appreciate Dessa's question and I think about it from the standpoint of um, improvisation isn't about the, the note in the moment, it's about what you do next. It, it is totally. entirely about what you do next. Totally. So the only way in which an improviser fails in some instances, like what you just said, is if you stop. Yeah. So, the yeah. So if you keep going and yeah. you keep adjusting and kind of uh, reacting to what you've done, mm -hmm. um, you can't really fail. It, no. It's the I nature mean, of. Yeah. You don't want to be playing and then suddenly say, "Whoops!" <laughs> this, that would be called a failure yeah. right there. All right. Well. We're going to come back to this subject, um, but okay. we're going to do it at the piano. Okay. And then and a little bit later, we'll have to check our schedules, do one at the organ. And okay. I think we'll put a little, a little uh, camera up and film them because I think then we can get a little bit deeper into, you can show us some examples mm -hmm. uh, at those things. But um, before we get off on, uh, on that, so what's, what's next here in the next month in the summer? Where are you off? What's... I know you're going to go to China. Well, you Barcelona first. Barcelona. I have the World Choral Symposium that I've been involved in planning. Right. So that will be for about 10 days, the end of July. Mm. Then I will go to Kylie, China for this ethnic music festival. Right. And after that, I come home and then I will go, which I haven't done for, I think, six or so years, I will then go to uh, Holden Village, mm, yeah. retreat center up in the Cascade Mountains and be the music guy there for about uh, 10 days. Awesome. 
And then it's fall, and we're then back it is. Into, we are there. We are into season forty-nine. Yes, of vocal essence. Well, yeah. uh, an early happy birth, seventy-fourth birthday to you tomorrow. Tomorrow, seventy-four years young. You don't you don't look a day over seventy-three. Well, thanks much. Mm-hmm.